Well, good morning. All right, there's fewer of you. You're going to have to do it a little bit better. Good morning. All right, there we go. Good job, guys. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Kyle. Um, and I know what you're thinking, so I'll just go ahead and let you know. They all are gone. So this is like third string. I get it. Um, but the good news is, uh, or what I see today, a lot of you are going to go home, watch a football game after this. And when you do, there's going to be an NFL team there. And a third string quarterback, in my opinion, has the best position on the field. Why I say that is because, number one, he gets paid a lot of money to play a game. Number two, during practice, he wears the red shirt and he's not going to get hit. And number three, when he finally gets in the game, no one expects much. So today, let's see what we can do, okay? We are in our series still with the Minor Prophets. And uh, I am enjoying this series very much. Um, and your elders are out today and they are on a retreat, which is, which is a big deal because... They're having time to kind of rest and recoup. Which, first of all, let me say for the church, thank you for giving them this time. Unless you've been in that position, you don't understand the weight and the heaviness of that. So thank you for that. Secondly, I would say while they're in this season of rest, I would ask you to pray even harder this week for them. Because... Sometimes it's hard to unplug. Sometimes it's hard to get away. And this to give you that opportunity to really pray for them. And then not just the elders, but also their families. I grew up a pastor's kid. I know the, the, the weight of ministry doesn't just come to the pastor. It also comes to his, their families. And so before we go any further, why don't we just stop and pray right now for them all. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given um, men to pour into our lives. That God, that we can trust them because they put their trust in you. And so in, in this moment, as they're sitting around, huddled around a TV, I pray that your Holy Spirit stirs their hearts this morning. That God, you give them rest. You let them feel some of the weight come off their shoulders this week. Let them enjoy the time together. Build relationship closer together in this time. And God, as they're there, stir in their hearts even toward vision. Re, re, re-energize the vision that they have for this place. And God, we pray for their families who are right alongside of them through this, this calling that they have. God, help them through it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles. Turn to Micah chapter 1. We're going to be in Micah. Now, the last couple of months we've been in this series. We've been in the series of the Minor Prophets. And I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed it. And what I'll tell you is it's extremely important what happens a lot of times in these 12 books is they're, they're quickly skipped over. And what I mean by that is 
we, we usually try to get past these because they're kind of icky at times, they're kind of hard at times. And so we know that Jesus is coming in the New Testament. There's 12 books right before the New Testament that we try to get through so we can get to Jesus real quick, right? But we have to remember that it's not 66 individual books. It's one grand narrative. We can't cherry pick which ones we want to hear. We got to hear all of it because we hear the whole story of God's redemption of us. And so I've kind of been geeking out on this. Um, And last week, Paul was talking with us about Jonah. What a jerk, right? Just be clear, Jonah, not Paul. Um, He did a great job. And we've been kind of having this theme that we see throughout every book that we've read. First of all, there is a call of repentance. And secondly, anybody remember the second one? I'm going to tell Scott you did. Reminders of God's goodness, right? All right, so. I told you to turn to Micah 1. Flip on over to Micah chapter 6 first. We're going to look at verse 8 before we do anything else. Because I see this in Micah as the theme verse. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Three things here we see. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, what you'll see in three sections we're about to go through in Micah uh, for the next three weeks. You've got me today and two with Scott. So Scott will be back next week um, if nothing changes, I guess. But Scott will be here next week. We're going to be doing three different sections. We're going to look at chapter one and chapter two today. But as we do, you'll see these themes throughout all of Micah. And as you see these themes, I want you to kind of pick them out as you go through. So let's start in Micah one, verse one again. If you would turn with me back there, we'll get cranked up. It says this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of more, more sheep in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, stop for a second. This gives us a chance to overview, right? Micah actually means who is like Jehovah. Now, I don't know what all the other prophets name means. But if I'm a prophet, I would love the name who is like Jehovah, right? Just walking in a room, there's like, hey, there's who is like Jehovah. Kind of draws some attention already, right? The nations of Israel at this time are already split in half. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah. And as that's the case, here Micah is addressing both. But he kind of has a lean toward Judah because this is where he's from. He has more passion for that area. This is happening shortly after Hosea and Amos, which we've already heard about. And Micah is also prophesying during the time of Isaiah. So, read two through five really quickly. 
says this, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth. And all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from the from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured out, poured down a steep place. And this is for the transgressions of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgressions of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Notice what it says in, in verse two, it says, hear you people, all of me. I want you to picture kind of like a courtroom here. Like Micah is saying, hey, there's a judge coming. There's a judge coming. And what this judge is going to do, he is going to to push back on some of the things you've been doing. You can almost hear it, right? Like, hear ye, all you peoples. We kind of hear this in a courtroom today, right? Like, like, hear ye, hear ye. Court is in session. But this is a different type of judge. This is the most and only honorable judge. God, ruler of all creation. He walks in and he approaches a judge's bench that's made solely for him. And as it's made solely for him, notice what happens in this verse. You see mountains melting, valleys splitting open. This is not some small judge. This is the judge of all creation. The only honorable judge. And so in verse 2, we see this. Judge that steps out. I'm thankful for a God who steps out. Even in times where it's tough. And, and, and this is what I'm going to tell you. A holy God will always confront sin. That's, that's our first point today. I passed that already, but we're going to hang. This is the what the, this was the part that I was nervous about, just so you know. Um, but anyway, a just... And holy God will always confront sin. I want you to notice that first of all today. Because who is this judge? This judge is God. And can we find comfort in the fact that God is a judge? I know that's not the part that we, we like a lot of times. But absolutely, we can find comfort in the idea that God is the judge. But let's be honest. Judgment is not something we really like to sign up for, right? It's not like free donut day at Krispy Kreme where there's a line going out the door. Nobody wants judgment. I would say we don't like judgment for ourselves, but we probably are okay with judgment on everybody else. And I can prove it to you. Been going down 240 anytime. Have somebody crazy drive by you. If you live here, you say yes. And so as it happens, what do you think in your head? I know what you think because I think it too. Oh, I can't wait for them to get pulled over. However, you like it when you're the one getting pulled over? No, we want judgment for everybody else, but we're not okay with judgment coming on us. But yet, let's face it, a holy God has to deal with sin or he ceases to be holy. He has to deal with sin or he can't be holy. I mean, the tolerance of sin is a sin in itself. 
the good news and the comfort we find in the fact that God is a holy God and yet God is the judge is this. There's a judge who sits on benches throughout all over the place and yet that judge, he judges based on how he feels sometimes, right? Like, like, like judges we know in courtrooms today, they, they judge based on how they feel. Some of them will feel like maybe they've had a bad day. I mean, if that judge is the one getting pulled over that morning, you don't want him judging your case that day, right? Because he might be moody. There could be a judge with a hidden agenda. God, here's the good news. God's never moody. God can't be petty. God never has a hidden agenda. He's revealed it to us. And if God is unchanging, then even in his judgment, it's perfect. And there's comfort we can find in the fact that God is holy. Because a holy God can't sin against you. Now think about that for a minute. A lot of times we get concerned with what's, what's next in our life, what, well, what's going to happen, how, how things are going to play out. But if it's in a sovereign God's hand, He cannot sin against you. He's got it perfect and under control. Now there's comfort in the fact that God's judge. But I want to tell you this, it's not meant to make you feel safe. So let's, let's continue reading, let's jump back in further. I know what you're thinking. Who they bring in here to punch us in the mouth, right? Here we go. Verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country. A place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay to waste. Wait, lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. And to the fee of the prostitute, they shall all return. For I... For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and the mourning like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. And it has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. We see two places named here in all this. First, we see Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. And as we see Samaria as the capital of Israel, capital city of Israel, we notice a few things he says here. That it's going to be left desolate and left in ruins. Micah actually sees this play out during his lifetime. In 722 BC, the Assyrians actually take and destroy Israel. It says here that their foundations will be exposed. The only way your foundations are exposed is if everything built turns into rubble. He's taking it down piece by piece. God is using an army to punish Israel. And what is he punishing them for? It's clear here in the scriptures. What is, what is it? 
It is idol worship and spiritual infidelity. They've also built temples throughout their cities and has even reached their capital city. They've also built temples just for cult prostitution. So, what he sees with Israel is they're wiped out, they're gone. They're gone. And then verse 8 and 9. Micah turns from just looking at Israel to where he looks at Judah. And the prophetic voice from Micah is a painful one because it's his people he is talking to. This is where he lives. These are the people around him. Which brings me to my point number two. God justly pours his wrath out against sin. One of the things that reading the Minor Prophets does is it helps us point to the gravity and the weight of our sin. The gravity and weight of our sin. And if we fail to miss the gravity and weight of our sin, what it does is it tempts us to ignore it. You've been tempted to ignore your sin? Maybe it's because you've not understood the depth and the gravity of your sin. We don't talk about God's wrath much, but we tend to only lean toward God's love. I mean, out of all attributes of God, right? Like we, we don't say, I love God and his wrath, right? No, I, I don't think we sign up for that. Because that's, that, that makes us feel icky. It, it, how can that be? How, how can this coincide with a God who loves? How can a God who loves have wrath? And I would make the argument today that you can't separate love and wrath. They go together. There's a book called Hope Has Its Reasons by Becky, Becky Pippert. And she compares it to a, a, a loved one who has fallen into a drug addiction. She kind of goes through through it a little bit, and she says, it's not like you go to your family member who has a drug addiction, and you're like, you know, this might not be a good idea. You don't go to your family who, who's got a drug addiction and say, you know, have you considered other options? No, that's not the way you respond. She responds this way. She said, love caused me to respond to one of her family members this way. Do you know what you're doing to yourself. You've become less and less yourself. Every time I see you, I wasn't angry because I hated the person. I was angry because I cared. I was angry because I loved them. I could have walked away, but love detests what destroys the beloved. Love destroys that which destroys the beloved. Think about that for a second. Love has to coincide with, with wrath. They have to go together because the thing you love, you have wrath for. You want to prove it, right? Like, look at your kids. I'm going to assume all the mamas in here are mama bears. Let somebody mess with your kid, there's something that comes out in you, right? Get a little angry. Why is that? Because you love them so much. 
I mean, I'm going to be honest. I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'll start a jail ministry if, I, if somebody ever messes with my kids. Why? Because I love them so much. I love them that much. And yet, in my love, there's no way I can even come close to the amount of love that God has for us. How can we assume then that He doesn't have wrath? He has to have wrath with that much love. And God's wrath, what He does is He gives humanity what they want. Let's face it, damnation is, is God letting your will be done. We see this in Romans chapter 1. It, it says this, Paul says this over and over again. So I turn them over to. So I turn them over to. So I turn them over to. Why is that? Because he's saying, you don't want my will? Yours be done. That's damnation. But submission to God is saying, not my will, but yours. The mere fact that God makes us aware of our failing is kindness on His behalf. The mere fact that, that God is calling us out is an act of mercy. And the fact that God allows us back under the submission, under His submission, is grace from God. So when we see this, we have to understand that this is God's passion coming out for you. That He loves you so much that He's calling you out of those things. So in verses 10 through 16, I'm not going to read them all for two reasons. Number one, we're kind of short on time. Number two, I'm from Dyersburg and those words are kind of hard. <laughs> what we see in these verses, though, Micah actually points to certain cities. And when Micah's speaking here, it's a poetic prophecy. He's using words very point. Poignantly, and as he is, he's pointing to certain things like the cities that he's talking about. He's actually matching the way the city sounds in Hebrew to the word that it would sound like also. So when he talk, calls one about dust, he's saying, hey, look, this is you're going to be turned to dust. I mean, it's kind of smart aleck prophet. Which I kind of enjoy. I would say it's poetic satire almost. But I want you to notice verse 13. It says, Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Remember, Lachish is a, is a city in Judah. But it's kind of in, in, in between where the Philistines are and where, where the capital city of Jerusalem is. And what has happened here, he says it's the beginning of sin. What has happened is sin has slowly crept into Lachish. And what has happened from there is it has spread throughout the rest of, of, of Judah. And as it has, it's finally reached Jerusalem. And now the country is full of this sin. Let's be real, right? Like this is what happens in our lives. It, it, it doesn't start just, we don't dive straight into sin. It's kind of a slow progression that happens. We do something small and we kind of cover it over. 
And then the next thing, we, we, it gets a little bit worse because now we just had to cover that up. And, and hey, I've, I've gotten away with that one pretty good. So let's try it a little bit further. And before you know it, what happens is the, the heart is kind of taken over with sin. And you end up in a place you didn't even realize you were going to be in. Why? Because you've allowed it to come in in the first place. What Micah points to here is the idea that, that yes, what they have done, they have allowed idolatry to come into this to, to Judah, and it started with this one city. If they would have never let it come in the first place, maybe they wouldn't be in this place, right? Have you ever felt that in your life? Maybe if I hadn't just did that one thing, I wouldn't be in the spot I'm in now. Just me? Okay. But what they're struggling with is idolatry. I'm not going to lie, that's really easy for us, especially here in America, right? It is easy for us to take our minds off of Christ because of all the other distractions that are around. Man, I'm going to be honest. It's very easy for your job to become your idol. Especially here in America, let me, let, me, let me explain how, right? Like, what happens is you are defined by where you work most of the time. Start a conversation with another guy. You're going to say, your name? And then the next question is, so what do you do? Because we define ourselves as that a lot of times. And that's not our definition, but that's the way we define ourselves. So what happens is we make that an idol for us so that we can be the best at that. So now I can say, I am this and I'm the best at this. What has happened is idolatry has come into your heart. And that pride has started to set up root. That's not the only sin going on at this time. Turn to chapter 2 with me. We're going to read the first five verses in this. Everybody still with me? I'll take it. Because woe to those who, de- who des- devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize, seize them and house and take them away. They oppressed a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk Hotly. Said that wrong. We're going to move on. For it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to the apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. What sin are they committing here? 
They are committing the sin of injustice. And let's face it, how it starts is, is, is it kind of creeps in again, right? You see this. They're coveting. And we've got to be careful today not to covet those people who are on vacation right now, right? But they're coveting. Not only they're coveting it, it pushes them even further to where they're taking land by force. They oppose the people and they take their land. And what God tells them is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it from you and give it to other people. What does he do? He takes it from them and gives it to the Assyrians who then have it taken from them and given to the Babylonians. Like this is what happens. They are breaking the law. The law that, that, that was sent to Moses, right? Like the, the law that, that, that had all the rules that we try to skip over real quick when, and when we're in the first five books of the Bible. We try to skip that quickly just because it's kind of uncomfortable. But the law part, they're taking someone's inheritance. You're going to hang with me because I think I lost service here. We'll figure it out. So what happens is they take it away. Assyrians take it because of injustice. Now we have to know that God takes injustice serious, right? We have to understand that he takes injustice serious. And I, I, I will just warn you too, how you, how you go and do your work at your workplace is important to God. How you represent God at your workplace place is extremely important to God. If you're committing injustice at your workplace, I'm going to warn you, God's taking note of that. Because this is what the world teaches us to do. But this is not what Jesus does when he shows up, right? Jesus throws injustice completely on its head. Where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Or where the worst of all, I mean the greatest among you has to die for you. Do we see this anywhere else? No, what we see is the greatest among you is the one who takes it the, the quickest, right? But that's not the way Jesus works. So if it's opposed to the way that Jesus wants us to live, we have to assume. We have to assume that he's not going to tolerate injustice. Still heavy, right? Let's look at verse 6 through 11. It says this, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do, do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich of their robe. From those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. 
The, the women of my people will drive out from their delightful houses and the young children will be taken away, will take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter winds and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. Something else happening here. But listen to false prophets. Micah is trying to draw attention. Quit ignoring what I'm telling you. Quit, quit ignoring your warning. I mean, we see three themes through each section that we're going through. We see a warning from God, which, which, which come obviously to us, right? Like, what was the warning? It was a judge is coming. Number two, we see the judgment happen. And what is happening here is Micah is telling everybody, this is the judgment. And what everybody's saying is, whoa, I don't know if I like that. I'm not comfortable with that idea. I don't, I don't like that. Then you have people in verse 11, right, who say and are saying things are going to be good. Things are going to be awesome. In the midst of the turmoil, you'll always have a voice telling you you're doing everything okay. Be careful of that voice. Be careful of that voice. What does he tell them? I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Sounds like a party to me, right? Like, sounds like they're, they're all about themselves. What does that bring? Happiness. We are in a world who is wrapped around the idea that everything that they have to do is for their happiness. And I want to warn you to push back on that because that is totally against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is totally against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and to be honest, let me just tell you this. Fortunately for you, God is not working for your happiness. Um, some of you are getting mad at me. Third string, remember, third string. But it's okay. God is not for your happiness. If I was for my kids' happiness, what do I know would happen? We'd have ice cream for breakfast in the morning. We'd follow that up with Reese's for lunch. And, and, and right before bed, we'd give them cotton candy. And I would be a fantastic parent, right? Don't you say anything. That's not love. That's not love. The message of love sometimes is one that says, stop what you're doing. Stop. Don't continue down this road. Would you pay attention to, to, to the signs around you? Stop what you're doing. And Micah is warning the people, stop listening to the feel-good messages. A loving God doesn't want your best life now in the midst of your hard times. He wants your submission. Because it is in your submission that you receive what you really need. And that is Him and Him alone. 
That's all you need in this life. The gospel message is not about you nor your happiness. It's solely about him. I'm going to say that again, let it hurt, and then we're moving on. But the gospel message is not about you or your happiness. It's solely about him. So, everybody do me a favor. Let's exhale for a second. Take a deep breath. Because that's heavy. I know this has been heavy and hard at this point, and this is this is exactly the point I think of of these minor prophets as we go through them. It is a pointing to how heavy and how difficult all the difficult things that sin brings on your life. But the good news is, he does give us a warning. He does give us judgment, but Micah here also gives us hope, which brings me to my third point. God always offers hope in the midst of judgment. Let's read verse 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Thank goodness for this hope. Because I've heard conviction without hope only creates hopelessness. It's like having surgery without allowing time to heal. In Micah's lifetime, he gets to witness the destruction of, of what he prophesied. But these two verses here. He doesn't get to witness in his lifetime. But the good news is we do. Verse 12. I want to read it one more time. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together. Like sheep in a fold. Like, like a flock in its pasture. A noisy Multitude of men. Yes, when Micah is speaking about Israel here, he is speaking about the remnant that is left over from both Judah and Israel at this time. He's putting them together, but he's also talking about something else. He's also looking ahead to the great multitude that's going to be gathered. And this is not just any multitude. This is a noisy multitude, which means they're celebrating something. What could they be celebrating? Well, I think it's very clear that the shepherd has showed up to gather his fold. If you would turn with me to John chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 14 through 16. This is Jesus speaking. It says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. And one shepherd. Jesus. Is the good shepherd. That gathers his fold. 
But why? Because we couldn't do it on our own. Let's read verse, verse 13 in Micah one more time. Micah 2, 13, it says this. He opens the breach and goes before them. They break through and pass the gate. Going out by it, their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Some of your Bibles actually might read that he is the breaker that goes before them here. And they pass through the gate, which not only does Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, but he also says, I am the gate. It's interesting to to me how all of this plays out because what happens and what Micah sees happen in this set of scriptures is that he, he clues us in that somebody's got to come and somebody's got to do something that you couldn't achieve on your own. Somebody's got to come and they got to break through the system that is set into place. And what we know, because we have read and we know this within us, if you are a Christian today, you know this to be fact that Jesus is the one who broke through. He's the breaker. That's what they're celebrating. That's what they're praising. That's what they're excited about. This great multitude of men is thrilled that Jesus is their breaker. Humanity couldn't fix themselves. And we still can't, right? We still can't fix ourselves. I mean, have you ever tried to fix things on your own? How does that go for you? I mean, you cannot fix things because it's a heart issue and you can't fix your own heart. You need a surgeon for that. You need a breaker for that. You struggle with lust. That's your heart issue, right? Maybe you struggle with anger. I know what will happen if, if you struggle with anger today. You live in Memphis. You'll be mad before you get home because of the way people drive on the roads. Like when you think you've got it fixed, you don't have it fixed. Why? Because you can't fix it on your own. Some of us have carried around bitterness for so long because we've not allowed the spirit to fix the bitterness on the inside and to heal the unforgiveness we've been carrying around. And I'm convinced you will never touch that on your own. You need a breaker. And in the, ho- in the midst of the hopelessness of you trying, Jesus is that breaker. He walked a perfect life. He suffered a horrific death at your place. He defeated death by his resurrection. He has ascended to the Father and says that the right hand of the Father now interceding for you. That's the gospel message. The breaker has made a way where you couldn't. Your sins will be confronted. Wrath will be poured out. However, here's the hope we have today. That if you're in Christ... The breaker is taking the wrath for you. The wrath is not poured on you. It is poured out on Jesus. And if you're not a Christian in the room today, I can tell you this. The good shepherd's still calling sheep to his fold. Amazing the weight of all of this. We, we've got all this 
judgment, destruction, sinfulness. But in the midst of the mess, Micah says Jesus shows up. And we know this from Romans, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a Christian today, you have celebration with a great multitude. Let's pray.